Good evening. You are listening to Resonance 104.4, and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host, Anna Gammons. This is my first show, and I am incredibly excited to be with you this evening. Incredibly nervous as well. Um, so I'm hoping this all goes down without a glitch this evening. Um, whether you're driving home or you're cooking, oh God, it's so cold this Monday. I'm really hoping everyone is nice and cozy, hopefully inside, um, for this next hour. So, Art Then and Now, this is a show that is going to give you a bite-sized look at the way that we use art to understand the world around us. So the theme this week is dreams, and the art we're going to be looking at from the past comes from 20th century artist Salvador Dali, and the art from the present comes from textile designer Kit Miles, who is incredibly talented. He is a designer, and that interview is a real treat for the years. He is just mesmerising. And then we've got an art review segment that is going to be on the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition. And then later in the show, I'm going to cover some art in the news. So without further ado, let's delve into the theme of dreams. Okay, you cannot talk about dreams without talking about Salvador Dali. I'm assuming most of you have heard of Salvador Dali, but you may not have. He's that guy that in all the photographs has like a fun moustache that kind of tweaks up at the end in all those 1920s photographs, Um, the black and white. And he always looks a little bit crazy in all of the photos. So once I start describing his most famous work, I'm sure that bells are going to start ringing if you haven't heard of him, but I'm sure that this is going to be familiar to you. So to give you some context on our artist, he was a 20th century Spanish artist born in 1904, and he was a member of the Surrealist Movement. Now, the Surrealist Movement was basically about unleashing creativity and visually depicting the work of the subconscious mind. Now you can see why it's called surrealism because they're not actually painting what's happening in real life, they're painting sort of what's happening in this made up dream world and that is why some of the work ends up looking incredibly wacky, very very strange because it's a huge departure from the 19th century realistic styles of painting that the Academy were so crazy about. So all these kind of paintings of men on horses and history paintings um, that were kind of very, very famous in the 19th century, all that kind of gets a little bit turned on its head in the 20th century. And it's sort of a rejection of the establishment and the almost the elitist hierarchy of what was considered good art. So, Dali was very, very influenced by psychologist Sigmund Freud. Now, (laughs) I know when I say the word Freud, everyone kind of recoils a little bit. Um, He speaks a lot about the development of sexuality and the subconscious brain. This is Freud I'm talking about now. Um, And he had some really quite daring ideas about sort of sexuality, very new ideas, um... And, you know, about kind of mother-parent relationships, father-daughter relationships. I mean, it all gets a bit crazy. Um, But but you can definitely see the influence of Freud on Dali's work, particularly when when he kind of describes the subconscious brain in his artwork. 
So it definitely permeated the works of a lot of art and literature at the time. <clears throat> and because art and literature is so heavily linked, you can kind of see the sharing of ideas throughout um, this kind of time where new ideas, new kind of daring ideas, a rejection of the past, that is what this kind of movement is all about. So... It's not about being controversial for the sake of it, the surrealist movement, even though it kind of seems a little bit like that is what they're trying to do, just create a bit of drama for the sake of it. Um, but the previous century um, in art, the narrative had been really, really one-sided. So as I said earlier, there's kind of history paintings, you know, a lot of men on horses, a lot of women in tight corsets, um, <laughs> battle scenes, you know, things like that. And Dali had had enough. He was sick of it. He was done. He kind of set out to subvert the idea of what was being presented as contemporary reality. So I'm going to go into what I actually mean by that in a second. Um, but he didn't want to paint things that you could see. So, you know, scrap the fruit bowls, scrap the horses, scrap the people, you know, with their dogs posing on benches. I'm sure you've all seen those works in the National Gallery. Not to uh, not to be too rude about them. They are beautiful paintings. But um, so scrap all that stuff. He wanted to paint things you couldn't see, but rather things that you could imagine or feel. So it was a very, very new idea at the time. And, you know, quite controversial, actually, as well. You wouldn't imagine it, you know, considering, you know, the unmade bed and, you know, Tracy Emmons' work. You wouldn't consider that we would be talking about it being controversial to not paint things that you can see in front of you. But, alas, it was. So... Dreams and the idea of the subconscious really takes to the stage when we look at the aims of the surrealist and how they used art to convey an alternate reality. So they're looking at dreams, they're looking at the subconscious mind, they're looking at you know everything that we think and feel that we can't see and that is really important to bear in mind. It's not stuff that, you know, it's not a fruit bowl, it's not, you know, things that are right in front of you, it's not um, a family portrait, it's something weird that you can't quite describe. And that is why the surrealist artwork tends to be totally bizarre. I mean, we've all, <laughs> I've definitely had those moments where I try and explain to my friends about my dreams. Like, for example, this is a real dream that Chris Pratt presented me with a doctorate in forensic science on a cliff edge. That was a couple of nights ago. I know, but completely bizarre. And I think what's happened there is that you've got kind of your subconscious mind is almost trying to put things together in a really strange way and that is when your dreams kind of happen they they take on a weird world of their own and the mind moves between different times different places different settings and different subconscious memories to kind of make up this sort of fabric this sort of semi-conscious lucid fabric and it's like a confusion of two states of consciousness which I think is totally fascinating and obviously Dali also thought it was fascinating too so, the surrealist work was usually totally bizarre and wacky, and the piece I'm going to talk about is called The Persistence of Memory from 1931. That's going to be the focus piece today. It is more commonly referred to as the melting clocks. <laughs> My sound engineer is nodding at me like, yes, I now recognise what you're talking about. Um, yes, we all know it popularly as the melting clocks. And I'm sure you've seen this image a thousand times. It's very popular in gift shop, um, sort of gallery gift shops. So you get the kind of the keychains of the melting clocks and things like that. Um, so it's first shown at the Julian Levy Gallery in 1932 in New York and 
as I've described, the Surrealists were very controversial and this is no different. It had a very controversial reception um, and people were kind of a bit like, what is this? We have not seen anything like this. Where's my? Where are my history paintings? Where are my depictions of lords and ladies looking fancy? Why is there a picture of melting clocks, a weird kind of human-esque mess on the floor, cliffs? You know, it's very confusing to somebody that hasn't seen this genre before. So I'm going to describe it a little bit. There are four clocks. One of them is a pocket watch and the other three look like they are quite literally melting off of surfaces. I'm sure you can imagine right now the image that I'm talking about. It's very, very famous. Um, so three three of them are painted melting and the rest is it's, it's a kind of deserted landscape. It's really kind of barren. There's not a lot going on. It's a really weird setting for um, a painting. It's just completely rejects the picturesque style of artwork that is used, everyone's used to seeing everywhere. So it was really, really strange. It is a landscape that was said to be based on um, Dali's hometown in Catalonia in Spain, but there is no confirmation of that. But as I said, it's totally barren. It's unwelcoming. There's jagged cliffs, dead trees. However, because it's so barren and plain, it really does draw your focus to those clocks. And I think that's probably the point. Um, so Dali said that he was very influenced by melting camembert, which is such a visceral image. And I, I don't know whether anyone's ever cooked a, a camembert before when you get it out of the oven and it just kind of like really sadly kind of folds in on itself and slides out on the plate. And it's just, it really is, they do look like melting camembert, to be frank. Like, um so it's sort of what Dali's trying to do here is subvert our understanding of time as something that is rigid and consistent. And particularly this applies to when you're in a dreamlike state. And he's trying to basically visually show quite cleverly that when you're in a sense of dreaming and you're in your subconscious, you can't really, don't really have a concept of time. And if you do, it doesn't really mean anything. It's kind of redundant. So... To visually show this, he's given us clocks that don't have any fixed form or structure. I know, see? You're getting what it means now, right? Doesn't have any fixed form, doesn't have any structure, because time has no relevance in a dreamlike state. It takes on a totally different form. So, the idea that time runs independently is something that was discussed a lot at the time, because we sort of live our lives by the clock. We go to work at a certain time, we get up at a certain time, and this is something that really infuriated Dali, particularly because it applied to the upper classes. And Dali was all about rejecting hierarchy. So he's trying to not only engage with time, this thing that kind of runs on itself and we kind of abide by the law of time, he's not only engaging with it, but he's kind of manipulating it and distorting it. He's kind of taking away the power of time and rendering it completely useless because who can use a clock that, you know, is completely misshapen? So it's actually really clever. It's a clever concept and it is a comment on the structure of our everyday lives. And Dali's kind of saying, oh, how futile it is to live by the hands of the clock. Um, why don't we live our lives being free of restraints and, you know, live like an artist? And I guess that's easier said than done. But that's basically what he was trying to say. He's making a social commentary on the way the kind of the middle classes choose to live their lives and particularly the pocket watch as well because this is a symbol of like hierarchy and status for the middle classes so he's sort of saying right okay I'm going to give you a pocket watch but I'm going to cover it in ants 
And this is something that sometimes gets missed in this painting, but actually the clock is covered in ants, which is supposed to represent death and decay. So he's kind of saying, right, I'm going to put a pocket watch in there, but I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be an infested pocket watch. I'm going to infest it with my ideas about how you are living your lives wrong. You're living your lives by time. You're living your lives with this wealth and kind of luxury. And, you know, he's just making a comment on it and how futile that is. And also my interpretation of this is that the idea of like time and things like that and life and sex, these human experiences we have, like life, like death, like sex, like dreams, they're so out of our control and it's almost like Dali's saying, okay, I'm going to have a little bit of control over something that is out of my control, over these human experiences. So there is a human figure potentially in this painting. I don't know whether anyone is, is either in front of it right now, that would be hugely unlikely, or able to Google it, but there is almost this weird figure that kind of looks like a monster. It looks like it's falling. It looks like it's on the floor. Is it sleeping? I mean, it's a bit confusing, to be honest. Um, there's also a school of thought that says that Dali painted himself into the piece or humanity as a wider sense to represent you know, the establishment. I personally think that the closed eyes are quite a poignant symbol of someone dreaming or of sub the subconscious. So potentially this is Dali's way of saying, right, I've painted myself into this image to humanize it and to give it some context because this is what I'm trying to say. It's kind of trying to direct his audience and say, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of paint my numbers this painting for you. I'm gonna put a human figure in it, sort of, that's dreaming. I'm gonna put some weird dreamlike subconscious things so that you understand what's going on. So Dali actually refers to his own work as hand-painted photographs. Sorry, hand-painted dream photographs. And I think the fact that he refers to his own work as a photograph is particularly interesting because, you know, usually when we think of a photograph, we think of the truth or a factual, um, something that we cannot dispute, something that is a truth. Um, but actually, I think he's kind of saying that this is sort of his truth and that actually um, he's painting it as a photograph as a way of sort of he's representing a reality that is true to him and Dali himself is he loves kind of playing with uh, the, <laughs> playing with his audience a little bit it's kind of a cat and mouse game with him he really enjoys that side of being an artist and enjoys that sort of juxtaposition of painting surrealist subjects in a realistic way to quote systemize confusion and thus help discredit completely the world of reality that was a little bit of a mouthful <laughs> but um in a way he's sort of painting to confuse like to he's pa painting confusing things in a way that people can kind of understand um and that they can kind of get their head around so in a sense it's sort of they get a, an understanding of his reality a new reality and that makes them question what actual reality is that they've been taught to believe for so long in these other paintings and these other documents um because what we're looking at is painted in such a realistic way that it could pass for a, a sort of a sense of reality it's a very confusing concept but a very clever one nonetheless Dali is very very rebellish though in his work if that hasn't come across so far and he even got expelled from the surrealist group he was too surreal for even the surrealists um i think i read online that he turned up to an exhibition in a diving suit in 1936 to 
plunge deeply into the human mind. I mean, this guy is like an attention seeker to the maximum. Can you imagine? Also, those suits were incredibly heavy in the 1920s. Like, the commitment is unreal. Um, Also, I think it's interesting is the time frame of this piece. So it's 1931. And the context is the end of World War One, beginning of World War Two, and it sort of almost to me speaks of a disillusion people are having with their everyday realities. And Dali is creating something that is an alternate reality that's sort of based in something that we all do, we all dream. Um, but it's like an escapist piece, you know? It's like saying, this is an alternate reality. We all experience this. Let's live in our dreamlike states for a little bit. Let's escape the harsh realities. So for that reason, I think this painting became later quite a little bit of a hit because it was like an escapist piece. Um, So yeah, it's a vision of what life could be and what it always has been whilst we're sleeping. So yeah, Dali's helped us see our own existence through an uncumbered lens, I would say. It's always been there, guys. We just couldn't see it until Dali showed us the way. (laughs) So... I hope that that gave some insight into the influence of Dali's dreams in the, 19, in the tw- sorry, 20th century. And now it is time for my interview with the unbelievably talented Kit Miles, which we recorded a while back and we discuss the power of dreams, alternate realities, creating visions for the f- and creating visions for the future. This interview is, oh, I love Kit. He's amazing. Enjoy. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? I feel yes, that would absolutely. be appropriate. My, my name is Kit Miles and I'm a textile designer. I have a studio here in Islington. Yeah, I'm sitting here now in Kit's studio and it is absolutely beautiful. Um, the oh, architecture is stunning. It's Georgian, am I right? Yeah. Um, with yeah. big, beautiful windows um, yeah. and it's just, it's an inspiring space and I think that's hugely important especially in London where <laughs> it can be a little bit tricky to find um, an appropriate space but well, I put this um, lamp on the ceiling because the initial I mean the, the building has as you said there's lovely Georgian proportions and yeah really tall ceilings yeah I painted it had it painted white um, so it kind of acts as a showroom and a yeah. studio in a yeah, way yeah. but I put I put this enormous sort of industrial chandelier on the ceiling because I wanted it to look a bit like um, a tarantula. Yeah, I love that. It does kind of have that feel to it. Yeah, I really like that. <laughs> so your work centres around the idea of dreams and sort of the, the concept of daring to dream. Yeah. Um, I'd love you to elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, more. well, it always felt important to me to present textile design, to present surface design as something very vivid. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think when I was thinking about becoming a textile designer, I think all I saw was an ocean of beige. Oh my and it felt <laughs> John Lewis. <laughs> you know, and I think, I think I found textiles when I first started training was a great vehicle for me to actually just talk about everything that I was really excited mm-hmm. about. I choose to create complexity out of, out of maybe, let's say, if I have a reference, I'll take one reference mm. from my mood board, it might be one painting, mm-hmm. and I'll try and invent a universe around that. It's mm. better to go from small uh, uh, inspirations yeah. and try and maximise on that, rather than maybe Smaller the other dreams to bigger kind of concepts. Yeah, I mean, in extension right. to your question, I think at the moment it's it's more important than ever to show people that dreaming is important, mm. and actually you can change reality 
if you dream and then make action. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's my it's a responsibility I, I find quite, you know, close to my heart. I love that. And I think that's the essence of, of creativity in its purest sense, mm. I think, as well, which yeah, I love. There's a, there's a quote I saw, it's on your true. website, inventing a new reality Oof. is something that <laughs> is something that you are yeah, very passionate yeah, about. True. So that obviously feeds into that idea of you can create your own universe of... I think so. You know, I of, think so. Of those ideas and concepts and designs mm. I, I would say when I look at your birds and chains collection it does feel like another world it does feel like a, almost like a dreamlike utopia kind of thing when you look at it and you know I think that that's you know that's so interesting and because if I was to have that on my wall I think I would feel like I was sort of transported just by the, the kind of the nature of it the colour <laughs> of it the decadence of it the fact that it's yeah. you've sort of put some things together that maybe would not ordinarily go you know the the kind of the the metal the kind of heaviness of the metal mm. is you know juxtaposed against the lightness of the foliage and you know the delicacy of the birds and I think that all together it's just like oh, how a dreamlike state I think oh, how that's gorgeous. how I feel about it. Well, <laughs> I mean maybe you could cover a wall in in a design from the collection yeah. and feel like actually it feels a bit like a portal through yes. to another world. That's how I feel about it uh-huh. when I look at it. I mean I I love this idea of otherworldliness you know more Mm. recently I've actually just been thinking again Mm. actually about the magic of our own reality on this planet and actually Mm. how this reality oh boy we could we could spend a while chatting about (laughs) it's already incredible yeah Yeah. I think I think um there's so much that we don't see Mm -hmm. that exists and scientists have done all the work to Mm. find tools to help us uncover those to try and take it out of the abstract yeah but you're right you know, and actually that what is unknown or yet unknown um, is is actually just so exciting. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think um, it's the fire for curiosity, surely. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that does imbue the collection with that kind of diversity that you see here because mm. it's, it's probably me trying to just discover new things all the time. You, you talk about with your work, you're kind of designing, taking things from religion and mm. and a kind of a regal uh yeah. kind of uh, decadence uh, of yes. the catholic church and things like that and you're bringing them into the modern age so i think that's probably an appropriate time to to talk a little bit about that yes so how would you kind of categorize the influence of religion and gosh it's, i mean i suppose the church the catholic church does play a role you know when i was uh, ever since i've been about 18 months old my my parents have taken me to an island called Gozo, mm. which is next to Malta. And Malta and Gozo are very, very religious countries. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And, and when you're on the island, it's nothing but a dust bowl until you go. I mean, it's a lot more if anyone from Gozo is listening. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. <laughs> there is <But> culture there. <laughs> huge, really ancient cultures, actually. I mean, they've discovered one of the oldest human civilizations on the island of Gozo. Anyway, yeah. they, they have a very strong faith there. Um... Uh, they're, they're actually, I've recently read, they're pretty progressive, which is fortunate. Mm. Anyway, you go from dust and powder and sandstone and you open the door to the cathedral or the church and it is just shiny, mm-hmm. you know. Dripping like, with gold and like... It's 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 very maximal um, and, yeah. I, and I love that. And, you know, you'll have, you'll have beauty of a painting and you'll have ornate reliefs and things. Mm. I mean, particularly with the church, you'll also have the rather gruesome side 
frankly, of the, yeah. the imagery associated with, I don't know, the doctrine or whatever. It's often sometimes in the places where you don't expect there to be a huge sense of kind of grandiose and, as you know, as I said, that kind of the decadent aesthetics of Catholicism and you sort of walk in and it, it almost feels like a different universe and I think that's a really interesting idea when we're talking about dreams and things like that to kind of talk about you know the elevation of uh, religion and its higher power that kind of dreamlike yeah concept. and I think like art in those environments was used to bring people you know emotionally up and out of yeah. themselves and make them feel sure. like they were sort of high yeah 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 probably um, yeah. You know, the church has bought a lot of art. It's been a huge patron of the art. Mm -hmm. It's probably the biggest art collection in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's just really, there really is just yeah. endless beauty all around. And yeah, that includes that. inside churches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not limited to. No, <laughs> but not limited to. Um, um, your Birds in Chains collection, which um, I have to say is my yes, absolute favourite. Yes, yeah, we're sitting, sitting in front right of it here. now. It's got this blue, beautiful. Um, uh, golden chain and it's it's well, on the fabric version it's um, wrapping around these two trees which are sort of constructed of um, palm leaves and kind of uh, more spiky leaves I suppose you could call them mm, with this gorgeous yeah. meandering vine of um, of like an inky blue uh, sort of flat leaf and then we have yeah. pansies sort of such a stunning colour. Is mean, it like a is it a tur azure, a turquoise? What would you call? One, I've called this colourway gold and blue and gold. I mean, it's very. <laughs> it's just stunning. <laughs> just very simple. I mean, it doesn't do it justice because it's absolutely beautiful. Those colours can't really because as it, we were talking earlier, and they're they're iridescent, aren't they? The colours are beautiful, and the gold is actually gold, which is amazing that you've kind of transferred that to fabric. Yeah, I mean, um, when you look at the. It's the job of the fabric designer, I think, to pull your eye through a pattern with mm. colour. And actually, yeah. colour becomes an incredibly cr critical tool in the, in the toolkit of, of the fabric designer. Absolutely. And often, when I'm designing a print, it will be, will that shape that I'm drawing allow me to use colour to mm. travel through, yeah. say, a fabric or a wallpaper? Yeah. And will it help me achieve the effects that I want? They're like... They're like devices, like in theatre you have thematic devices, yeah, in fabric yeah, yeah. you have the same, it's called colour. So I want to I want to go a little bit deeper into the you quote about the alternate reality. I know we're sitting in we're sitting in your studio and I do feel like I'm in a bit of an alternate reality, full of beautiful things. Um, and I want to touch upon the idea in your Birds um, in Chains collection. You talk a little bit about the strange beauty of nature, and I think that that is a really beautiful quote um, and feeds into that idea of an alternate reality and almost mm -hmm. a dreamlike world where things are not as they seem, perhaps. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's absolutely. When I came out of the Royal College of Art, I I finished my education for two years there. Um, I felt that there was so much more to know, and of course that's something that's carried on, which is great. Mm. And I delved into the world of reading science books, particularly um, by two authors, by Lawrence Krauss and mm. by Richard Dawkins. And Lawrence Krauss is a physicist. Right. Now, science, huh? Science and art. <laughs> We're covering everything. <laughs> science is an art. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I think understanding a little bit more purely um, up from an interest point um, about physics and what goes on beyond the end of our senses mm. 
and and thinking that they are still there. Um, I mean, like an unconscious explain. kind of um, absorbing, maybe our environment, or like an appreciation for our surroundings that is not maybe conscious. Well, look, scientists can through tools and through data and through knowledge yeah. actually find realities that a human on their own can't actually perceive, listen, hear, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I think. I find that very inspiring, the idea that you can create tools to extend mm. the human senses mm-hmm. and to peer into previously unpeered into universes yeah. and worlds. Yeah. You know, that's really exciting. Well, I think that's that's really interesting. And and as you said, science is creating a world that is it exists, but it's, we are seeing it in a different vision. It's and just, you I mean, are creating things that do exist in some sense, but Well I think um all the scientist is doing is looking for truth. Mm. I'm creating something. Yes. They're not creating anything. Yeah. Scientists, yeah. Um, you know, there's a lovely quote by Carl Sagan. He says the, um, the universe is not just stranger than we suppose. Mm. He says that the universe is stranger than we can suppose. Mm. And that idea that we are not the centre of the universe... Mm is so yeah. such a relief and yeah. it's so exciting yeah there's a freedom in that isn't there there's a um, huge freedom which because is there's so much more to know and again yeah. that, that just yeah. utterly goes back to well, the creative pursuit which is curiosity yeah well I think that it's yeah. that the sort of science is sort of revealing the vision you're creating a new one um, which is you know that in itself is empowering that yeah. in itself is a freedom yeah. um, and you know what that's uh, I mean yeah that's yeah, so, that's so exciting a big wonderful universe out there and I want to reflect that in my collection, and I don't mm. want my collection to be formulaic. I don't want it to be expected. I don't mm-hmm. want it to follow an aesthetic norm. I would, I would rather do something that's a bit more full of life than that. Yeah, yeah. When you kind of realise the ideas for your designs, are you are they things that kind of are in your subconscious? Are they things that you have thought about? Are they just uh, is it an aesthetic appreciation you have for things that you're then transferring, or you know how do these ideas or dreams, as it were. How do how do they kind of form themselves in your head, and then? I think I think a lot of them are just passing interests mm. or um, a fascination with. Uh, I mean, we have a design over here called the Europa design. Mm. The Europa design. Um, it's the one on the. This is the one here on the far it's right. It's the blue. It's like a gate, and I describe yeah. it as a gateway into the palace of our dreams. Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> And it's, its references are quite far-reaching, but it, in essence, and purely from a visual point of view, yeah. it looks like a gate. Um, yeah. So it's the literal sense, but also, uh, you know, a metaphorical sense at the same time. You've merged the two. Yeah, sure. I think it all—I think it all really does come back to early childhood um, exposure to a couple of films. Mm. You know what? I think my work, thinking about it really does come from Fantasia and and The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> there is something very fantastical about it. And in fact, I've got, even got it here in my notes. <laughs> Maybe. Um, your I'm use not... of colour is, is particularly <laughs> fantastical. Um, but that's really interesting. I love that. Isn't it funny how childhood yeah. influences can can kind of take a hold? Childhood influences, um, yeah. And I think in, in a child's brain as well, they, there are not the same... Um, boundaries that we have in the adult brain so I think things seep in in a different way I know. and I think that's really interesting I yeah. you know they, they say that um what children know even you know in the literal sense of dreams when they're when they're dreaming they they their <laughs> dreams are so much more fantastical than adults you know I dream about 
you know, work and things like that. Think, um, maybe um, I'm just boring, but um, but I, <laughs> no, think I think that's that, quite almost normal. that childhood idea of, of there aren't boundaries to these things. These concepts are um, they're free of the constraints of, you know, mm. uh, life and, you know, things it's, getting in the way. And it's an important thing to remind ourselves um, as artists and designers in the world mm. that actually we can break down barriers. We can push against mm. a force acting against maybe negatively towards society. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like blasting the Challenger rocket into space mm. and inspiring people to dream bigger, mm. I think design and art have a huge force behind them mm. to do that. And maybe we can jettison ourselves into you know the next stages of our societal evolution i i think the great human project mm. is going you know overarchingly i think it it's going very well i mm. think i think it uh, needs to at this moment as well we need hope don't we in the world and we i think absolutely that's, do. that's from creative i think yeah we can offer visions of the future and we can um, yeah, offer those absolutely. kinds of things you know so, absolutely you know i guess you just got to do what you got to do and uh, mm. you know yeah no, I love yeah. that. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you this big question at the end because I'm nice and I've left it to last. Um, how do you think, because, you know, we look at artists from the past and, you know, they have a huge um, relevance today and we talk about them and things like that, but I think there there's the idea that maybe art has sort of lost some of its impact because, you know, because it's taking on so many different forms, there's so much of it, you know, it's very saturated. Um, I personally don't agree with that, but, you know, how would you kind of talk about the relevance of art today and its impact in our lives huge question <laughs> go <laughs> yeah um well i mean like like i was just saying i think it it has the power to lift us out of times of difficulty out of tragedy mm. um i design because i consider myself a designer mm -hmm. i really think is the glue that holds this earth together mm. the human earth mm. It really does. We need designers to figure out ways. Innovation. Of, we need innovators. We need scientists. We need artists to all collaborate mm. and find out ways to take the plastic out of the sea. We need to find ways to grow more trees on mm. this earth. We need to find ways to feed and nourish the people who don't have access to those things. Yeah. And I think that's not a dream. That's a reality. And yeah. designers and artists can make that happen. Can I can realise really that. Think we do. And let's collaborate with businessmen mm. and women. And let's all just work together. Mm. I mean, we really have to. Oh my goodness. I wish everyone was like you, Kit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's um, a really amazing idea. And you know what? I wasn't even thinking about it in the kind of... Um, you know, you've taken it into a kind of political arena, but I think that that is so important. And you're quite right in saying that um, if we all work together and yes, you can kind of, we need people to practically impose those kind of um, improvements, but we also need people to come up with the ideas of how we're going to do that, the vision of how that's going to work um, for for a better world. So I think, wow, we've really taken art to... <laughs> To the kind of the, you know, for the bigger picture. And we want people to have that. fun, don't we? We want people to be happy. For sure. So what is life happy. if it's not to to be expressive? You know, we as people express ourselves. We need yeah. to do that. It's the lifeblood of of human beings. Mm. So that's really yeah. interesting. Well, Kit, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, where can we find you? Where are you, you on the internet to... and <laughs> elsewhere? Yeah, if you go on to www.kitmiles.co.uk. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a website there that will greet you and um, open a swing a door open into my universe. <laughs> um, and if you check me out on Instagram at Kitmar Studio, then that's a great way to see everything. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kit. And uh, this is really lovely. A pleasure. to Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host Anna Gammons. I hope you enjoyed that interview. His work is amazing. Um, I was completely mesmerised in his studio and you can find all of his work on his website and I'm going to post a link on my Facebook page at Art Then and Now Show. So if you do want to see any of his work, which I strongly advise, then please head down to there. So that was how two very different artists from two very different times and contexts have used the same idea of dreams to explore their realities, their own realities and kind of the fabric of what makes us who we are. So coming up, there is some art in the news, but before then, it's time for my art review. And this week, I took a trip to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition. So... I'm very ashamed to say this is my first time actually going to this exhibition um, because I should, as an artist, I think I probably should have gone already, to be honest. And it's always talked about every year and everyone says how amazing it is. And it was actually a friend who is not an artist, nor does she like art. She doesn't like going to museums or galleries. And even she said, you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to go. So... I did and it was fantastic. I absolutely had the best time there. Um, So worth doing, so glad I went and this is a little bit about what I thought of it. So I very easily booked tickets online. Their website, it was £15 for an adult. I think that was with a donation. Um, I went ahead and did the donation. I was like, oh God, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't review this without donating. So I did. I advise people to donate as well. It's a very worthy cause um, because as I will talk about, it is often more than the art. It's about the conservation as well and just learning about our environment um, more widely. It was so fascinating. Um, and I didn't want to rock up having had no idea about this exhibition. I didn't want to rock up not knowing anything. So I did some tube research on um, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition. And as a little bit of a backstory, I found that it was the 54th year that I was visiting. And there are over 45,000 entries, um, which is so many entries, chosen on the creativity, originality and technical excellence um so they they kind of they display these beautiful photographs on what's called their light panels um which um i guess means that the the kind of colors are so vivid and the detail was absolutely amazing i think they're, they're lit from behind basically um so it's not like a flat photograph it's like almost like you're looking at an led screen um in fact you probably are i think that's how that works in fact um and that was honestly amazing very very cool experience um So 1965 was the first year when actually David Attenborough, believe it or not, presented the winner, C.V. Roger Downs, Downs as well, Downs as well. Um, I'm sorry, I really, I butchered his name there, I do apologise, with his image of a tawny owl carrying prey to its young. 
So this goes all the way back from 1965 and it's still going incredibly strong. But as I said before, it was not just about the art. It is so about the moral message. And that becomes really, really apparent when you've stepped into um, the Natural History Museum and you actually go to this exhibition. Um, It's about the moral message of natural history itself and about conservation. Um, And there's a huge focus on young people as well, which I thought was really impressive because often young people can be the most creative, but they're also people that maybe don't have the resources and don't have the accolades to be able to kind of shout and scream about their talents. So I love the fact that this was kind of an all age, all talent um, competition. And really, the standard was so high. I mean, speaking as someone who is not an expert, having never been before, but the standard was incredibly high. So I love the fact that um, even young people got a look in. That was amazing. I think I saw an image of someone, um, a photographer was as young as eight years old, I think, that took a, um, a picture and it was absolutely amazing. I just, I, it kind of blew my mind. Um, so it's basically a window into the world that is all around us. That is what this exhibition is all about. And in some ways, it's a world that we all know and we're all very familiar with, but also one that we don't know anything about at the same time. And I sort of felt really intimidated walking in Um, for that reason, because I sort of, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen nature before, you know, I've gone on holiday before and, you know, I've seen an elephant. Um, but but actually there is a world out there that we know so little about and we are so disrespectful sometimes to the environment. And I just thought it was just so fascinating for that reason and so important and profound. Um, in 1984, the exhibition moved to the Natural History Museum. So it's been there ever since. And I have to say, being in the Natural History Museum... As someone with a history degree, I adore the Natural History Museum, but it was also just so kind of grand in there. And you feel the sense of importance and, you know, being surrounded by, you know, the bones of that giant whale. (laughs) It was absolutely, it was just a very awesome experience. And I mean, awe as in, I was in awe. Um, So the building itself is absolutely beautiful. It's surrounded by fairy lights at the moment as well, which my favourite thing. It looks so Christmassy and pretty, but it was also just so grand and such a fantastic place to host. Um, Such a beautiful and important exhibition. Um, So the exhibition gained international recognition and it started to tour in Australia and New Zealand and Canada. And then in 1986, it was in the USA. And the 1990s, it went to Japan, India and Brazil. So this is an international extravaganza of a exhibition and you can totally see why once you've been it is world class so it's judged anonymously um by age profession i'm sorry um age profession uh age and amateurs are judged together sorry that was so unclear um regardless of your age regardless of your um how professional you are, whether you're an amateur, everyone's judged together. And I just thought that was fantastic because, as I said, it meant that young people could enter, they weren't intimidated, um, and you don't have to be a professional photographer. You can just have a talent, and that was amazing. Um, In the 1990s, it was changed slightly by Bruce Pearson, who was a wildlife artist who won the judging panel, and basically decided that it should be more about the essence of the subject rather than just the aesthetic photograph. So that kind of gave it further meaning. As well as that... The digital revolution changed the rules on photography. And basically what I mean by that is that before the digital revolution, uh, photographers had to make sure that they had that one winning image and they would take all kinds of crazy risks. 
And then, of course, they wouldn't know at the end of the day if their risks are paid off because you couldn't see the image until you'd had it developed, which was very costly and very timely. So the digital revolution kind of opened the doors really to more and more people being able to involve themselves. And that meant people could take multiple images. And that is kind of really apparent when you see photographs of birds in flutter or, you know, animals kind of jumping or it's just amazing. And you can tell that they've sort of taken a series of shots and they've got that one perfect image. Um, you know, subjects in motion and things like that. That was, they, they were very, very popular there. Um, and you can take one or more photos if you need to. And yeah, it was just, oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, so more people could enter the competition with the digital revolution. And as camera equipment has gotten cheaper and cheaper, that means there's kind of more and more people entering, which I loved. And that, I guess, makes the toll 45,000 entries. I guess that explains that. Um, the conservation side of things as well was really important because it sort of gives a public acknowledgement of the conservation issues. And as well, because sort of media, like magazines, radios, programmes and films... Um, they all kind of jumped on board really and started talking about similar things. So um, it meant that because obviously, as I said, magazines and radio programmes, they're all on board. Everyone's kind of talking about issues that are really, really important. And that kind of meant that it sort of became like a media um, frenzy, really, with this kind of idea of conservation and preserving our environment and our protecting our ecosystem, which, as we all know, with climate change and, you know, despite what Donald Trump says, <laughs> um, it does exist and uh, is really, really important to um, to really bear that in mind when you're looking around. Um, so I arrived at 4pm and I walked up the stairs and as I said, it's so grand in there. It's so beautiful in there. A really perfect place to hold it actually. Um, but there was no clear direction. So I actually found myself walking round and round the uh, ancient, I, I found myself in some ancient um, bone room. <laughs> That is the best way I could describe it. I basically walked into the wrong room several times and I kept asking the same lady where I was going and I think she thought I was a bit crazy. So I sort of just ended up having to find my own way. It is not signed very well, signposted. So you basically walk to the back and then take a right. But I just, I don't know, I was getting it wrong. But um, the room is, the room, it's kind of two separate rooms. They're adjoining and it's absolutely silent in there. Apart from there's this kind of low level nature music and it's that's the best way I can describe it it's kind of like that casually epic music that you get when you're listening to um David Attenborough documentary um you know and it kind of like da, 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 and it's sort of really uh <clears throat> excuse me it's uh yeah casually epic it was on in the background and it really gave a sort of haunting and sense of grandeur to the whole experience I loved it but no one was saying a word I think people were just completely absorbed in what they were watching um, and what they were looking at so that was a really lovely addition as well that music really helped to create an atmosphere um, there's a very clear starting point to the exhibition and it's a very very a confronting image of a scene of the brutality of nature and it's entitled it's titled um, Kuhira oh god I'm going to butcher these names I'm going to try really really hard it's a very international exhibition so I really apologize if I uh, get some names wrong okay that's my uh, that's my uh, apology out the way um, so it's Kahira mourns her baby and the photograph was taken by Ricardo Nunez Montero it's a really, really sad scene, actually, um, of a mountain gorilla. She's holding the corpse of her baby 
um, but she's still grooming it and cuddling it. Um, and then the photograph sort of it gives a brief description. It says that she later ended up eating the corpse, which took an, a strange turn, but it, it, it sort of humanised the experience of these animals and it really got me when it said that she was still grooming oh grooming this baby gorilla that was really hard hitting and it was the first thing you saw as well when you went into the door so uh yeah it starts off with a bang it starts off with some hard hitting nature photography um then there was the really cute images and <laughs> the romantic side of me was like in nature there's there's such cute couples and there was um the courtship ritual of western um grebs and it was called togetherness and karen schooneman i really hope i said that right uh was the photographer and they they were these two birds they were sort of mirroring each other using weeds and props to sort of do this dance and it was really lovely to see um and that was a beautiful image and then and then one thing I never thought I was going to see was two snakes doing the same thing. So there were two adders, a male and a female, in a courtship ritual. And they're kind of apparently the way that they um, sort of seduce each other, as it were, were to move their bodies up and down together and vibrate their tails, if you can imagine that. And it was called sinuous moves. Um, you can tell by that sibilance that it was a really it was a fantastic title. I didn't really realise until I said it out loud that how uh, aptly named that piece was. But that was really interesting to see. Again, no idea how snakes get it on. So that was really fascinating. Um, and then you move to the human impact of um, nature. And that was the really hard-hitting section. Um, that sort of documents a human influence on the natural world. And it is, it is quite, um, it's quite brutal. There's images of tigers hit by cars, bears in cages, oceans full of plastic, things that we hear a lot about, but actually seeing it visually was quite arresting. And um, it sort of caught me off guard, actually. I, I sort of wasn't expecting to have such a visceral reaction. Like, I, I got quite, you know, emotional about it. It was really, really awful to see. Um, one particular image was called The Sad Clown, and it really got to me. Uh, it was an, it was a long-tailed mar-cake, mar mar I think is how you say it. Um, it's essentially a monkey, um, and it's trained to stand upright for a street show, um, and it was wearing sort of a clown mask and it was just, oh God, it was the weird juxtaposition of seeing a clown face, like a happy clown face on a just clearly distressed animal that was being trained um, for the circus. And it was a really strange image of like a sort of joy, but like totally, totally cough at the source because it was just such a harrowing image. Um, so that was really, really strange. But I think it's so important that we see these images. So I sort of made myself, I looked at everyone, I read all of the captions as well. Um, another one was called Beach Waste um, by David Higgins. And that was of a dead sperm whale being moved across the beach by a digger. And it was so evocative because... It was black and white for a start, which sort of made the whole piece look quite empty and hollow and stark. And it was just this contrast of this beautiful beast of nature and the sort of destruction of machinery. And, you know, those two things combined were just really, really awful. They're just It was a horrible image, but absolutely beautiful at the same time. So, yeah, well done, David Higgins. You took a, a cracker of a photo. Um, my favourites were... There was one called A Bear on Edge. This is by Sergei Gorshov. Oh, 
my goodness, I really hope I said that right. Sorry, Sergey. Um, and it was one single bear walking across, it was like a platform of ice um, in the Russian Arctic National Park. And it was sort of like a, com- um, a comment on polar bears and the conservation and climate change um, and animals really being dependent on the environment just as we are. We need the warm to stay alive and they need the cold. And it was a really beautiful image because it was just this one bear and this huge platform of ice. And it really kind of gave you um, an insight into the destruction of nature and how how powerful it is, how big it is, how brutal it can be, but also um, the kind of the real vulnerability of, of the species that live in places that we would never even imagine going. So that was amazing. Um, there was one piece called Cool Cat by, I guess, Isaac, sorry, Pretorius. And I loved this image. I really, really did. I think it was almost like the picture image for the exhibition. It was the one that was sort of put everywhere because it was a lioness drinking alone on a riverbed and it was taken in South Africa and it just looked so cheeky and for some reason it looked the lioness she looked so human and she's kind of drinking from this river and she's looking up at the photographer but it's like this weird acknowledgement of the moment between them of sort of her drinking him taking a photograph and it's very confronting but it's totally beautiful and it's sort of this lovely sort of a capture of this wonderful moment of sort of human and animal and that kind of mutual respect and kind of you do your thing I'll do my thing and I'm just going to kind of quietly be here and 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 well I guess take a photo (laughs) maybe not so uh maybe not so um yeah it was it was it was quite intrusive but an amazing image nonetheless um and that was that was fantastic there was one called dream jewel I hope I'm yeah by Michael D'autrement, am I really? I, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I nailed that, but I don't think I did. Um, and it's of two dueling red deer, and this was this was amazing because it was like this eerie, almost sepia image of these two deer sort of engaged in this fight and their antlers were locked and they were fighting but it was like there was sort of like smoke and mist and I don't know how the photographer he got that image so perfectly but the symmetry of these two animals in battle was just astounding it it literally looked like he'd taken the same image and developed it twice like it was of, of the deer and sort of like do you know what I mean mirror imaged it because it was just so symmetrical it was amazing and the fact that he caught that moment was that was a fantastic piece loved that piece um and then the kind of the main one the the showstopper as it were uh, is called the golden couple and that was by marcel van oosten which was a male and female golden snub-nosed monkey um and they were two of them they had these sort of blue faces but they're a striking orange color and it stood out so vibrantly against the green background. It was like the colours had been digitally edited because it was so vibrant. And the monkeys looked posed as well. The whole thing was just, it was almost too beautiful to be real. Um, and that won the grand title and it was no wonder because it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, it was so, the whole experience was incredibly profound. And, you know, I just think with the personal stories of these animals, it just made it just just the most incredible experience it really sort of brought the whole thing down to earth excuse the pun Um, and I loved it and I truly truly recommend it to everyone all ages tickets are on sale in the Natural History Museum and they do offer concessions um, for students and the like Um, and that is till June 2018 
so that was my that's my review before we go we've got time for some art in the news and there's been some strange things happening in the news at the moment um i'm sure everybody heard about banksy um early in october sotheby's um was sort of the setting for a banksy attack <laughs> when a girl with a balloon was auctioned off for 1.4 million dollars i think in in pounds that's about 1.04 roughly um, and to everyone's surprise the painting automatically shredded itself following the winning bid um, Banksy posted a photo on Instagram which I've also got on the Facebook page um, the art then and now show so if you want to check that out that is on there um, but it basically shows him building a shredder into the frame and I've got to say I found it really comical um because it's just the video is just a lot of professionals at sotheby's trying to keep really calm like oh um sorry everyone just a moment um and it's basically this painting just this million dollar painting just shreds itself it is very funny if you haven't seen it watch the video um and see a lot of um a lot of uh, people trying to professionals trying to keep calm uh very very funny um and the european bidder who paid for the painting decided that they still wanted it um, and it was newly <laughs> retitled Love is in the Bin which is a really really depressing thought but um, very clever nonetheless well done Banksy you got Sotheby's pretty funny um, it's now people are now saying the piece is actually worth more and you know I'm not actually surprised like the uh, the fact that it, it was the first ever piece to be created at an auction house um, and also just because everyone's talking about it and that is if that's not what art is the, the showmanship of it um, so of course that's increased the value of course it's worth more money now um, so of course heightened publicity for both the artist and the auction house um, there are questions as to whether Sotheby, Sotheby's knew or didn't know I just think I, part of me says, how on earth did they not security screen that painting and realise there's a shredder in it? A shredder's a pretty hard thing to uh, to hide. But then I'm also like, well, it doesn't speak well of their kind of, uh, I don't know, if, they, if they're in cahoots with an artist who's very anti-establishment, then it just, I don't know, it doesn't ring, something smells fishy, but I'm not sure if they were on it or not. I'm going to say no. I don't think they were. Um... But yeah, part of me thinks, God, the audacity of this guy, but also think, you know, bravo, Banksy. That's pretty funny. Um, what on earth is he going to get away with next? Um, Hockney is another artist that's recently been in the news uh, because a new record was set on the 16th of November for a living artist, David Hockney, aged 81, uh, with his portrait of an artist in the pool with two figures in, that he painted in 1972. It sold for an astounding... 90.3 million with fees at Christie's. I mean, who's got that much money lying around? I just don't know. Um, but yeah, absolutely incredible. And in 2017, it was a cover image for the catalogue accompanying Tate Britain. It's very famous. Everybody knows it. Um, so yeah, that was art in the news recently. Um, that is is all we've got time for thank you so much for spending this hour with me this evening i hope you're all safe and sound and home now at nine o'clock um and i hope you enjoyed listening to art then and now if you're an artist who would like to come on the show or if there's anything else you think i should be reviewing please do get in contact on my facebook page it is at the art then and now show i welcome criticism constructive 
<laughs> and otherwise um, if you just want to compliment the show I mean that's fine too um, all the images discussed today will also be up there and as well as links to our website